Please pray with me. Lord God, we pray that your Holy Spirit might fall down powerfully upon us today, Lord God. May you so fill our hearts that we are drawn clearly to you and that your word speaks to us clearly, Lord God. We pray that you might place your words in my mouth, that I might proclaim them faithfully. And we pray that you would do great and mighty things with those words which you have shared with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Morning. Morning. It's so good to see you all today. Um, okay, so I got a ball right here. If I drop this ball, what will happen? It will fall, right? And it'll bounce, and then it'll keep bouncing, right? Because that's what happened. And what force is acting upon this ball when I drop it? Gravity. But notice nobody said that in their answer, right? They just said it'll fall. Nobody said, well, gravity will take hold of that ball, and it'll accelerate at a rate of, what, 9.8 meters per second, right? Close enough, something like that, right? And why didn't we mention gravity? It's common knowledge, right? And, and everybody knows the ball is going to fall, and we all know that the reason it's going to fall is because gravity's acting upon it, but we never mentioned gravity, right? Anyone think that's a grave thing or have great gravity that we didn't mention it? No, sometimes the most important things are not mentioned. Sometimes the essential things are left out of the discussion, and we just talk about balls falling. Something like that, I think, is happening in our book of Esther this morning. That force that is unnamed is present there in that book as well. Now, Esther is the story of a young Jewish girl living in Persia. And so, at the time of Esther, there's flat-faced cats walking all over the place, right? And she's being raised by her cousin Mordecai, who adopts her as his daughter. Now, the book of Esther is not very different from, like, the Bachelor, or like America's Next Top Model, or something like that, right? There's intrigue, there's a little skin, there's a little, um, like, it's sometimes morally very ambiguous, right? Or maybe not even ambiguous, but just not good. Um, that's just how this book is. You should read it. It is a good read. If you've never read Esther, go home today, open up your Bibles to Esther, and dig in because it is entertaining and wonderful, the story it tells. Now, the competition that's happening in the book of Esther is to find the next queen for King Ahasuerus, right? And one woman gets selected as the queen. What do you think happens to the rest of them? They become concubines. Right? Anyone know what a concubine is? Okay, let's not get into that right now. <laughs> right? Um, and so your odds are not so good of being selected as queen. Right? And the rest of them all just end up in a harem uh, waiting on the call of the king. So all the girls, all the beautiful girls in the land are taken to the king for selecting. And Esther, the, the, char- the main character in this book, is one of them. Now, the king's eunuch immediately takes a liking to her. He says, there is something about this Esther that is to be praised, something great about her, and so I'm going to take care of her. He makes sure that she gets the best treatments, and he elevates her to the highest place in the harem. All this time, Esther has a secret. Anyone know what Esther's secret is? She's Jewish, right? She's not telling anybody, though. She's keeping that one buttoned down. But every day, Mordecai, her cousin, comes to check on Esther. 
and to make sure she's doing all right and is being cared for. After 12 months of beauty treatments, that's a lot, right? Uh, she, is taken, she is now ready to see the king. Now, the way it worked um, is that the girl would go in to see the king in the evening, bringing with her whatever she wanted, and then the next day, she would get sent off to harem number two. Right, So there was harem number one, which was like the prepositioning staging location. And then harem two was the, now you're an official concubine of the king. Right? And so um, she's, she um, waits on the advice of the head of the harem to see what his advice is as to what she should bring with her in to see the king. And apparently he gives her good advice because Esther goes in there and... The king is dazzled with Esther and falls madly head over heels in love with her and makes her his queen. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, thank goodness, right? Because the other options are not so good. Now, things are going great for Esther, right? She's the queen, the queen of Persia. Right? This is pretty awesome. She's just gone from a poor, lowly little girl who's been adopted by her cousin to now the queen of Persia. But then there's a guy named Haman who enters the scene, right? If this was a cowboy movie, he'd be wearing the black hat, right? He's the bad guy. He comes in, and he becomes the right-hand man to the king. And so Esther's on one side, Haman's on the other. Both of them have influence over the king. Now, Haman really, really likes being the right-hand man to the king. I mean, he loves it. He especially likes it because whenever Haman comes around... Everybody has to bow. I mean, who wouldn't like this, right? <laughs> Haman loves this, but there's a problem. There's this guy named Mordecai. Remember Esther's cousin? And Mordecai won't bow to Haman. Anyone know why? He only bows to God. Right? And the, the Persian leaders were considered to be gods. Right? And so... Mordecai is not going to play that game because Mordecai is a good Jew and he's not going to bow to anybody but God himself. And Haman likes this, doesn't he? Haman's like, I appreciate, I respect your religious freedom to not bow to me. No, what do you think Haman does? He wants to put him to death. And not only does he want to put Mordecai to death, but he wants to put every Jew in Persia to death. And you know what country was a part of Persia at this point? Israel, right? It had been conquered by Persia. So every Jew was going to be killed because Haman was mad at Mordecai for not bowing to him. This is getting good, isn't it? I mean, the plot thickens, doesn't it? So he tricks, Haman tricks the king into issuing an edict to kill all the Jews in Persia. And so Mordecai and all the other Jews tear their clothes in sorrow knowing that their death is guaranteed. Now, Esther at this point is not sure if she wants to get involved in this debate or in this whole thing. Why do you think? Yeah, she's sitting high on the hog, isn't she? Right? She's the queen. I mean, she's gone from poverty to the, the highest position she can possibly hold in the land. And so she's not sure she wants to immerse herself in the problems of her people. And so Mordecai comes to her, and he says, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. 
For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just a time as this. Isn't that amazing? Oh man, I get fired up every time I read that quote. So Esther, after three days of fasting, decides that she is going to risk her life and enter into the presence of the king. Now, why would you risk your life to enter into the presence of the king? Yeah, you're going to die anyway, but why is it dangerous to enter into the king's presence? Anyone know this one? Cass, way to go. Nobody entered the king's presence without the king inviting them in. And if you went in there, even if you're the queen of Persia, if he doesn't extend his royal scepter to you, you will be killed on sight. That's high stakes, right? I mean, this is not typically how marriages work. I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm just learning on this thing, but, um, right, that's not how, I don't think that's how it's supposed to work. That's not freedom and love and all those kind of things, right? But that's what Esther is risking. She's willing to risk her, risk her neck to possibly save the Jews. So she enters into the king's presence, and what do you think happens? That's right, she's killed and the story ends. It's sad. I'm sorry about that. Um, you'll have to come back next week. And No, that's right. Yeah, the king extends his scepter to her. He welcomes Esther into his presence. And so Esther invites the king and Haman to a feast, a special feast. Right? And so she plans this feast for them. And Haman is thrilled. He's like, yeah, I got invited to a feast with the king. And Esther, I'm so special. I love this being number two in the kingdom. And after the, the first night's feast, he goes home to his wife, and he's like, in order to celebrate this, I'm going to build a gallows to hang Mordecai on. And it's not just going to be any gallows, it's going to be 75 feet high. All right, you're going to really hang him, right? You're going to really, really do it. Right? And so he builds this gallows, and he's all thrilled about it. But his wife pulls him aside and says, Haman, if Mordecai before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. What a downer for Haman, right? He's just been at this great party and his wife's now, look, you're a goner, Haman. Sorry about that. Things look good now, but it's not going to be looking good tomorrow. And so at the first feast, Esther had invited them to a second feast. So after uh, Haman's wife warns him, Haman goes to the feast the second night. And there at that second feast, um, in our passage, we have the account of what happens. Esther reveals that Haman has come up with a plot to kill her and her fellow Jews. And the king is so ticked off that he orders that Haman be hanged on the very gallows he has prepared for Mordecai. How is that for poetic justice? I mean, it's beautiful. Then... There's still a problem, right? Because the king's original edict still stands, right? The Jews are still going to be killed on the 14th and 15th days of, uh, or the 14th day of that month, right? Adar, Adar or whatever. Because the king's God, and can God change his commands? No, not there. Not in Persia. If you're the king and you're God, you can't change your mind. That's really, that's really got to be a tough thing, right? Uh, and so... Another command has to be issued, another edict from the king, in order to counteract that first one. 
And so, since the king can't say you can't kill the Jews, what the king says is that now the Jews can defend themselves from attack. And so what happens is the Persians come out to to kill the Jews in their communities, and the Jews rise up as one and take out their captors, take out those people who were wanting to kill them. And so they're not set free, but those who are oppressing them in Persia are taken care of because of this second edict that the king issued. Pretty awesome, huh? What had turned into an opportunity for the Jews to be destroyed now turns into a chance for them to have victory and freedom. Now, the book of Esther is totally awesome, right? And I'm sure you're all going to go home and read it because you should. But there's one big issue with this book. The main character of the book is never listed. Sure, we get a lot about Esther, but the real main character is never named or spoken of. Two lines, though, are crucial for our understanding of what's going on in the book of Esther. The first one is Mordecai's statement to Esther. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. And then Haman's wife quote, which says, If Mordecai, before whom your downfall has begun, is of the Jewish people, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And so the question we have to ask is, why? Why? Why will, why will Haman not be victorious? I mean, he's the king's right-hand man. He's already, got a, he's already got the king's signet, and he's signed an edict that's going to wipe out all the Jews. The reason they're going to fail, the reason these statements are true, is because there is a real hero waiting in the wings. There is a real victor. There is a real defender of these people who is just waiting to step in. And that hero is God himself. God is just waiting for his chance to redeem his people, to set them free, to throw off their captors. Sure, he's not mentioned in this book. He's never named by name, never uh, directly spoken of. But you can see him in the quote from Mordecai and Haman's wife. They both expected that God would intervene in their lives. They knew it was to be they knew it was going to happen. They knew it was as sure as this ball dropping if I let go of it. They knew that there was a force as immutable as gravity that was going to act in their favor. They knew it. God is present, and he was going to redeem his people. And God is still present today, and he is wanting to redeem us as well. Now, it might not always seem like God is present in our lives. We might not be able to see him or hear him or feel his presence with us, but God is here, and he wants to set us free. He is the hero who wants to save us, who wants to vindicate us, who wants to throw off our oppressors. This saving action was taken by Jesus Christ when he picked up his cross and was crucified for us. And because he's the hero, he couldn't stay dead. Death could not hold him. The grave could not hold him. And so he rose in victory, and he wants to extend that victory to us now. He wants us to trust in him. 
to believe that he has risen and that he is here for us. He wants to set us free from the power of sin and death. He wants to offer us hope and life. And he wants to to offer us the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. The challenge for us today is will we accept his victorious death for us? Will we accept his grace? Will we turn over our lives to him and serve him with zeal, with hope, with peace, with joy? And will we proclaim his good news to a world which desperately needs a hero? You see it all the time. The world is searching for a hero, isn't it? We put all kinds of people in that heroic role, don't we? Major League Baseball stars, right? Football players, politicians. We put all kinds of people in this heroic role. But the only hero that can ever set us free is Jesus Christ. And so may we come to him today and accept his gift of life and freedom. Let's pray. Lord God, we turn to you now and ask you to be the hero in our lives. Lord, we might not always see you. We might not always name you, Lord God, but we trust you. We trust you to be the victor for us. Lord, to be the hero when we are weak. And so we entrust ourselves to you now, Lord God. We pray that you might forgive us for our sins and that you might reconcile us to the Father so that we can love you and serve you with joy and peace in our hearts. And then place your message of hope in our, in our mouths, Lord, that we might be able to share it with a world which is desperately in need of a hero. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.